Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware and Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. And welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast giving you, the listener, clear vision to make great decisions. In each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different topic from the business owner's or executive's perspective. We aren't necessarily telling you what to do, but we can put you in a position to make an informed decision on your own and understand when you might need help along the way. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I'm a director at Brady Ware & Company, a full-service accounting firm based in Dayton, Ohio, with offices in Dayton, Columbus, Ohio, Richmond, Indiana, and Alpharetta, Georgia. Brady Ware is sponsoring this podcast, which is being recorded in Atlanta for social distancing protocols. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast aggregator, and please consider leaving a review of the podcast as well. So today's topic is a little bit of a meta topic. And by meta, um, what I mean is this, is that this podcast is called Decision Vision, and, and for the most part, the topics have involved exploring the process of making a decision on a particular topic. We've gone more granular and topical from time to time um, uh, because events warranted it, or I just thought it was interesting, or, or quite frankly, because the conversation needed to be more tactical, particularly during the, uh, the onset of the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, but today we're going to kind of go out in, in in a different direction and explore the process of making good decisions. And I think we're going to do a series of these over time that that explore different facets of making a, a you know a good decision generally and how to develop a good decision making skill set. And uh, I, I was kind of inspired by this by um, of all things um, a master class. Um, video. And if you spend any time on YouTube, for some reason, you know, Masterclass will throw up a, a, um, a, a commercial on YouTube. And by the way, those things are fantastic. I watch the commercials, just the commercials. They are so good. Um, but anyway, they have this thing by uh, Gary Kasparov, who was a, a world chess champion and, and a dominant player for a, a very long time. Um, and uh, and he has a master class on 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 chess playing. And I used to play chess competitively. I I don't anymore. Uh, I'm too old, and I do other things now. But um, uh, one of the things that he said about the value of the game of chess, which I just I thought it was so insightful. And for all the the games I played, um, and all that I've studied about the game, I never really understood this: is that the game of chess makes you a better decision maker. Because the game of chess is about making decisions. It is a process of making decisions and, and, and thinking ahead and, and, and not just thinking ahead, but also having to decide, you know, do I move this piece here, this piece there? Do I capture this piece? Do I not capture this piece? And, and every move is a decision. And I thought, wow, that, that's, that's really neat and profound. I didn't waste all that time in college and high school playing chess. Um, and so a few weeks ago, I run into this fellow, or he rather, he was introduced to me by, um, by Brian Filoni, who's our marketing director here at Readyware. And, and he's a specialist on, on making decisions, and a specialist on, on making a decision in one particular facet that I find 
I find excruciatingly interesting. And, and I know that's a strange turn of phrase, but, but it, 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 it really is that. And that is the use of data in making decisions. Um, and, you know, data is all now, and it really has been for about 10 years or so. You know, everybody has, everybody's listening to this podcast, or at least 98% of you, I'm sure, have heard the term big data. Most of you probably has a pretty good idea as to what it means, have a, has a handle on it. But what do you do with that, right? And, and is, is big data for me? And if, you know, I happen to be a numbers geek, I do numbers for a living. So I have some training in data analytics, but, you know, a lot of people don't. Um, and, and data analytics was really not taught in business school in any meaningful way until about 10, 15 years ago, with the exception of some very specialized programs, for example, at Georgia Tech. And, you know, on, on top of that, and this will probably be another topic that I wrote, that, that I, I do at some point, but, you know, for those of you who know me or have listened to the podcast, you know, I do, do a lot of work with startups and I, I can't tell you how many times somebody pitches me a deal and they say, you know, our, our, our business model is, our business model is data and we're going to sell that data to folks that want to use that data. Right. And, but then you sort of get into, well, how do you do that? Or what's the data worth or what's the, what's the business even sell data? And, and very quickly, that conversation goes from smooth sailing to running aground in about 19 icebergs and a rocky shoal because data is so, oddly enough, data for something that is designed to be very specific. Once you really sort of get down to brass tacks, you try to, you try to convert the conversation into useful, actionable business strategy. It's, it's, not all that, it's not all that easy to do. And so helping us with that is um, my new friend, uh, Tyler Ludlow, who is founder and chief decision scientist of Decision Skills Institute. After earning a degree in applied mathematics and an MBA, Tyler studied decision science at Stanford University. He then mastered its application at Global 500 Companies, leading decisions for a $750 million investment a global product launch, and more. Tyler has worked with top universities such as Stanford, Yale, and Dartmouth, as well as 18 of the top 20 pharmaceutical companies. After a decade in those contexts, Tyler decided to pull a Robin Hood decision science and founded the Decision Skills Institute to bring it to people everywhere. He helps people like you turn your decision burdens into opportunities for growth. Tyler's best decisions were marrying his wife and having their 10 children. Um... That's not a typo. I may have to go into that as well. Um, talk about a recidivist. Uh, together, they, out, they enjoy the outdoors. I'll, I'll bet you do. There's no space for anybody. Hiking, backpacking, rafting, ice climbing, etc. Tyler, thanks so much for coming on the program and welcome. Hey, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Ten children? <laughs> yes, I, and I actually had to recently update that description a couple months ago. It used to be nine, but we have a little two-month-old. Well, congratulations. Um, are you guys like the Partridge family and you just drive around in an old school bus or what? <laughs> we haven't owned a regular vehicle in a long time, that's for sure. Uh, yeah, no, but we, we love it. We love it. They're great kids. They're awesome. It's, it's a lot of fun. It's a party. So how are things, I mean, do all 10 still live at home? I mean, some must be out of the house by now. Our oldest is 21. 
Um, and he is he's interesting life that that kid. Um, he did a uh, his senior year of high school. He did a um, a computer full time programming boot camp three month program thing. So he's had a full time professional career job as a developer at Geico for two years now, um, and is looking to buy his first house um, in shortly. So um, he'll be moving out, and then our nineteen year old will be moving out shortly. Um, but we go down every two years or so down to, uh, well, down to our newest. So, um, we still have a full house at the moment. Well, that that's neat. And you now hold the official, uh, decision division podcast record for most children. <laughs> the previous record holder was Tom Brooks who came on, uh, I think somewhere in the, the thirties for this show. And he has eight. Um, uh-huh. and I thought that record was going to stand frankly for a lot longer than it did. So, Congratulations. I know I know that this acknowledgement makes the whole thing worthwhile, I'm sure. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. Um, wow. Okay. Well that, that could that could be a separate podcast, but I did promise our audience we would talk about big data decisions. So we will uh we will we will transfer back to that. Um <laughs> so Tyler, let's let's start off. What what makes for a good decision? What how do you know if a if a decision that you made is a good decision? Uh, that, that's a great question. I think, you know, that's actually that exact question. Many times when I speak at an event or do a workshop, I will start with that question prompt um, and use a, a Q&A response engine where I can record everyone's ideas. And what I find that when most people answer that question, uh, the most common theme is that I got what I wanted, that got good results. It's something about the outcomes, right? Um, right. The, it's, I think it's interesting in the corporate settings where a lot of decisions are made by committee or by group. The number two thing that I see come up is, you know, everyone agrees on it. Everyone's on board or something like that. Um, which I think most of us could envision that uh, we can make a good decision and sometimes the best decision isn't, you know, everyone doesn't agree with. Um, and as well as you can make a good decision and have bad results and have a bad outcome. Um, I can also, talking about kids and whatnot, I mean, I can't remember the number of times where I didn't study for a test, right? Which would, I think, normally be considered a bad decision and still ended up getting a good or a decent grade on it. So that's a good outcome. Um, so I, the, the key to me in answering this question is, is first being able to decouple or detangle outcome or decisions and their results or their outcomes and and to realize and we're talking about what makes a good decision it's we want to focus in on making good decisions regardless of the outcomes recognizing that better outcomes happen more frequently when we make good decisions um you know and 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 i want to spend a little bit of time on that point because um um you can, in fact, get a good outcome from a bad decision, can't you? Oh yeah, yeah. Right? People Let's, get promoted all the time. <laughs> well, they, they, well, they they do. Um, but you know, take take an extreme example. Let Let's say that you know a person decided that that um, for whatever reason they're going to start using drugs, right? And in the course of using drugs, they met another user, right? That that led to a fantastic professional opportunity and. It, it made them um, 
uh, it made them very wealthy, made them very successful. <clears throat> and maybe that, maybe that even led to a scenario in which they went into rehab and got off the drugs. Right. But you'd never tell somebody to go start using drugs because that's the path to success. Right. 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 And, and I think one of the things that makes the, that, <clears throat> that, that makes the, the one of the things that makes the decision good good versus bad is is separating kind of process from luck right when you make a decision you you the goal i think is to control as much of the outcome as possible right did you control and how much did you sort of stack the deck in your favor as opposed to whether or not there is actually a good outcome yeah there's a lot about uh i love the way you kind of separate out process there's the process that you, you use to make the decision. And then there's sort of the moment that you decide. And then there's all the other implementation, so to speak, putting it into action that happens down the road. And we can do all sorts of things to influence the outcome or mitigate certain risks or whatnot that help better results to show up more frequently. Usually we can't guarantee it. That's what makes life so interesting and exciting and fun. You know, I mean, that's what makes it uh, all that variety. Um, it also is what brings us all the stress and the worry so much uh, about these things in the future. Um, but yeah, the, we do what we can at the moment that we make the decision. Then we do our best we can to, to stick to it, implement, adjust all those things afterwards. Um, but it's not the actual outcome itself that, that should be our measuring stick for whether we made a good choice or not. Now, could could the definition be modified maybe if if you have a process that's leading to lots of good outcomes, right? Maybe that, maybe that's a, maybe that's a way to kind of think about is if you have a good decision process over time, you should have better outcomes than the person that has the, 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 the poorer decision process. Right. And then that gets into basic statistical analysis, right? That over time, as your sample size gets greater, your expected outcomes should start to match your actual outcomes from your sample size. Yeah, absolutely. On the nose. That's what I tend to use the phrase, you know, better outcomes more frequently. Yeah. You know, you're never guaranteed on one to be better off, but you're right. As you make more over time, you, you should be better off. Yes, absolutely. So, um, you know, you're, you're, you're approaching, you're approaching um, decision-making from a data perspective which, you know, I love, I wish people that did what I do for a living would approach things from a more rigorous data perspective as well. But again, that's another podcast. Um, you know, everything is about big data and, and artificial intelligence now. And we sort of have this healthy sprinkling of blockchain as well somewhere in there. You know, why, why aren't we just turning everything over to robots and websites at this point to make our decisions? That's a that's a good question because we probably should be turning more and more. We're learning that we we can be turning more yeah. and more over. But so why do we not just turn it all over? Um, I think there's a few reasons. Um, one, so like for example, I was just last week I attended a virtual conference, um, and at that it was on decision making. And at that conference, there was a session on on the the, mer the merging or the integration of data science and decision science. Um, and one of the presenters was this gentleman who's a data scientist. Um, and he had sort of a framework, a model that he was slides that he was some pictures, that he, graphics that he was showing. And uh, it was really intriguing because he showed how from a data science perspective, one of the 
features that big data provides is identifying problems or opportunities, right? I mean, it's seeing the patterns that we as humans don't, our brains can't handle all that, right? Um, and, and those are, I think, potential opportunities. Because I think the key, like when we, we talk about the decision-making process in general, I think the place that most of us go wrong is that most folks will see decision-making as I go collect some data, I analyze it and make a decision. Um, and where that, you know, cynically can go wrong is that you get the right answer to the wrong problem. Um, that you're not really tackling, that you're not framing, taking some time to sort of frame that, that decision. You know, what is this? What, what's my main objective? What's most important to me? Just kind of early insight on, on all that kind of stuff. And I think that is one of the opportunities to blend data, what do you call it, data science or big data or whatever, but data with decision-making is one, identifying the opportunities, right? Sometimes we don't see those. Um, I think big machine learning AI can, can uh, bring up opportunities. Um, so I think that's one way that it can help in that mix to make, you know, classic definition of, of being able to decide, even the root of the word to decide comes from our decision. It, you can hear in it sort of that the, the root of the word scissors. I think they both come from the same root in, in, in Greek or Latin. Um, and so it's about cutting off all options except one that then you move forward with. And that's, that's what a decision is. Um, to make, to select that best alternative, the measuring stick is what, what we care about. It's, it's the value criteria that are important to us. And AI can't tell us that. We have to get clear on, on what we want. Um, and, and, and that's part of, I mean, AI can do it. Machine learning can do a lot to learn how to find that in the data and get better at, you know, spotting a cat in a picture or, or, or other more important things. Um, but to be clear about what's important in the beginning and what we're driving after, um, let alone then to take these opportunities and then say, yes, this is one that we want to move after and frame that decision. I think that's where the humans are needed. Now, I think there's a misconception that all of a sudden data matters as if, as if nobody used any data before to rely on <laughs> making important decisions, right? Right. And, and so, you know, it's, it's a misconception to say that data, you know, hasn't been around, hasn't been driving decisions, right, for a long time. Um, so, but what, what's, what's different now? What, what has changed where, where data is now sort of a top of mind, um, very much kind of on, in the evoked set, if you will, of decision tools that's, that's available? Well, I think just the last word that you used, avail availability, something right. being available. I think that's one of the biggest keys. I mean, you can layer onto that computing power, right? The ability to be able to do something with it, to make sense of it, especially to be able to make sense of it in a timely fashion. You know, uh, often we don't control the time bounds of the decisions in which we need to, that we need to make, right? Um, I, I can think, you know, we do, we've done a lot over the years with um, stochastic simulation or Monte Carlo simulation, being able to use a computer to, to do that. Like the theory and the thought of how that would be valuable existed before the computing power. Um, and even in the early days, it could be done on big behemoth processors. But to be able to put that at people's fingertips, I mean, I've worked on projects where it was, you know, all of that rocket science, so to speak, gets embedded under the hood and the decision makers, they're not even going to an expert anymore to work with it. It's just happening at their fingertips. They're getting almost instantaneous, you know, 
looks at distributions of potential future outcomes and then being able to make their decision about whether to go forward or not. Um, so I think the availability of the data, um, like as you asked your question, I was thinking how, you know, a company that I used to work at, pharma company, we would, we would every drug that we had, every molecule that we had for every pot potential disease that it might uh, be uh, efficacious in, we would do an assessment of the likelihood of it being able to clear each of its uh, clinical study hurdles on its way to potentially being approved. And so it's an assessment about the future. Um, historical data in the past might be informative, but there's a lot of subjective information about you know, current science and regulatory stuff and all sorts of things that we're looking towards the future. Um, as one reason why we relied so much on subjective assessment in that process is because that there wasn't available data um, to be able to aggregate. Um, that's happening, that's changing in more and more places where you get the data available and then you have the computational power to, to make sense of it in a time frame that's useful for the decision maker. I, th I think those are some of the big keys. You know, those Monte Carlo tools are now, you know, so, so powerful. And they, they're, I, I found them with my clients to be so eye opening. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm fortunate. I, I kind of made a commitment to learn that kind of modeling a long time ago. And uh, in addition to having it sort of generate referrals from my competitors who don't, aren't really very comfortable with doing that. When, when, you, when you are able to show a, a client not a static outcome like a forecast, for example, or three or four forecasts based on, you know, best case scenario, worst case, middle case scenario, which just that stuff right. drives me crazy. But instead, <laughs> you, you're able to, with Monte Carlo, you're able to show people the full range of potential outcomes and literally show an image that paints a picture of the distribution to show kind of the relative, that trade-off between likelihood of outcome and extreme, extreme uh, amount of outcome, basically. And at first my clients thought it was witchcraft, but once I sort of explained to them that no, it's, 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 it's not witchcraft, but, but it is different. Um, you know, there's just so much, there's so much there. And I, I don't think Monte Carlo simulation and the tools that enable it, they don't get enough credit in terms of how much that can that can and is starting to revolutionize decision making. Yeah, yeah, dead on. You know, and as you were talking, I was just thinking this is just timely. It just last night, uh, three of my boys were playing Risk together. Nineteen-year-old, yeah. uh, my fourteen-year-old, and my nine-year-old. And a, a week or so, it may have been during this conference that I mentioned that I was attending. You know, we were looking at all this different modeling stuff. And I had this idea that I should teach my kids just the concepts of Monte Carlo simulation. And I thought, you know, it's been a little while since we played a game of risk. I'll, I'll teach them, we'll use some risk and I'll show, you know, hey, you can look at these different strategies. Should they attack one country to the other? There's a best case. There's a worst case. There's the average. But it's really the distribution of potential outcomes that you, that you want to make your strategy based off of. And so it just so happened, like, that they started their own game last night. And so... They're partway through and I walked in and I said, hey, guys, <laughs> I'm going to interrupt your game a little bit. I want to teach you this thing called Monte Carlo simulation. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 you know, we homeschool our kids, so they're OK with a little bit of mom and dad interrupting life to do some teaching. But um, so we did that. And I we talked for like, you know, 15, 20 minutes. I just gave him the concepts. I showed him a Google Sheets engine. That was a very light Monte Carlo engine. 
And they all got it. In fact, my nine-year-old was the most excited about it because he usually gets pounced on by his older brothers when right. he plays. But he was like, I can have like a some you know this little magic crystal ball type spreadsheet that can give me an idea of how successful I might be. Um, that's really cool, Dad. So I was. It went better than I thought it would, but I was. It made me think, kind of like your last comments. You know, as we keep moving forward, um, and and people become more fluent in these sorts of techniques and, and and data and in the use of it, even if they're not the data scientists, just the usage of it. Um, I think it will dramatically inform and increase the the quality of our um, decision making. So what is it that makes data big? How did data go from being data to big data? Good question. Um, well, certainly there's a, you know, the back to maybe a little bit of this availability piece um, and the ubiquitousness of that availability. Um, a lot of it having to do with, with databases becoming more proliferated in all different areas of our business, um, things being more trackable so that they leave behind a database trail. Um, and then the ability to share that data between systems. I mean, even just the analysis that we're talking about doing, um, even if that analysis was possible, um, you know, uh, processor wise, um, and the data existed to do it with, you still have to then get the data into the system that's going to do the analysis. And, you know, whether that's an engine like Excel or add-ons into it, or it's a, you know, bespoke piece of software, the interoperability. So the availability, the ubiquitousness of that, and then the interoperability of that sharing of that data to get it to the point where it's closer to that point in time where the decision is being made or being looked into. Um, to me, that's, those are some of the key things that, that had it go from data to big data. I think one of the big challenges is how do you take, how do you make big sense from big data? No, now we're swimming in it, swimming in this stuff. Yep. And how do you then use that in a timely fashion to, to actually make sense of it where it's not a black box, where you understand the story that's being told and you could communicate to somebody else, this is why we're doing it this way, as opposed to just, hey, this this machine told me, I, I, I don't know why, type thing. So, um, can every business benefit from using data to drive decisions or maybe using it more than they already do? That's a, so I think the answer is yes, but that's kind of, I think the answer that you'd, ex, that most people would expect, I think. But then I think the cynics are rightly so in thinking really like everyone, all of us, even some of these small entrepreneurs, small business folks, you know, um, which like I take, I think that sort of pushback is, is good. Um, so I think the answer is yes, in the right way. Um, you know, one of the biggest challenges I think we have in smaller organizations down to our personal lives. I think that's the smallest organization me and my individual life. Um, one of the biggest challenges I think we have is learning how to press the pause button and reflect a little bit before we make a decision and not just be in the flow of what, everything else that's going on um, and, and creating an, uh, an opportunity, like almost creating that fork in the road and then saying, hey, I'm going to do something about it. Um, sometimes in the moment when we're going down the river, right, we don't have the ability to necessarily make Taking, take much time to make a decision about which which fork in the river we're going to go we're going to go down just because of how fast the the current is. 
Um, so I, in, in the moment, I think there's one answer about when is it appropriate to use big data and when do you just not have the time or the resources to make it make sense? Um, but the frequency with which it is useful, I think goes up if we learn how to press the pause button. If we learn to sort of mm. pre-think some of the, our decisions in a more strategic fashion, um, rather than being so reactionary when they actually come up. And so I think in times like that, where you have a little bit of time to be reflective, it provides more of an opportunity to go out and get your hands on and do something with that big data. And then, you know, once you've kind of pre-made that strategic decision, it might pop up here, there, here, there, as, as you're running down the river, so to speak. You know, I think that last point is really smart. And I know we didn't, we didn't bring you on here to talk about the psychology of decision-making. I'm going to make a topic out of that at some point, <laughs> but that pressing the pause button before you make a decision, I think I found to be so helpful. Um, if, if there's one thing that I've learned over my career that has made me a better decision-maker is to push pause and realize that I, that most decisions I need to make in business are not snap decisions. Nobody expects me to make a snap decision. And there is something to taking a morning or an afternoon or sleeping on something or even a weekend to make a decision that just leads to much better, just better outcomes. Yeah. Uh, I remember we did a, I was approached to to help develop a training for, it was like 3000 employees uh, at large companies to work at. And, and the whole point of that training, it, it wasn't around how do you make really big strategic decisions, which was the normal place that I was, my day job was within the organization. It was about how to help employees think about just taking 15 or 20 minutes um, to stop and just jot down a few notes, think through through some, a little bit of reflection before making that next sort of day-to-day, thoughtful day-to-day decision, right? Um, so you, you're absolutely right. Um, Learning to be able to do that uh, is one of the biggest challenges. Having a great decision process is fantastic, but if you never take the time to actually deploy it, you're you're, you're missing out on its value. Yeah, I mean, it's it's rare in business that you really have to make weighty, snap decisions like that, right? We're not in the military, so you know we're not we, we don't have to start moving troops around, otherwise people die. It's like okay, well, this problem is going to be here as long as you're not using it to avoid the problem. Right. There's something to be said for sort of taking your time and perspective and and, you know, adding some intellectual capital. Um, You know, one of the one of the things I hear about data and I hear people offer a lot of misgivings. I'm somewhat sympathetic to this argument is that, you know, complete data is almost never reality. And and attract, you know, can you fall into a trap of of striving to collect that last bit of information that you just never actually make a decision, right? And then, you know, how? What's that inflection point? Can you can you talk through like what that inflection point kind of looks like or even feels like? Right. Where you just need to say, okay, you know, I've got enough. I'm never going to get a sure thing, but in terms of kind of kind of cost benefit, this is as much as I'm going to get. How how do you how do you figure that out? So, yeah, great question. And I think, so my answer to it, I'll come at it from essentially just building on the previous little discussion point that we had about um, the, pressing the pause button or, or the language that we use is, is to declare a decision. 
So when you declare that decision, there's some time that you take to say, um, am I thinking of, uh, what's my overall objective here? What am I trying to achieve? What are the alternatives I have on the table? You know, one of the biggest mistakes that people make is that they'll frame up decisions as being, do I do this? Yes or no? Should I do X or Y? Um, rather than being able to go sort of a step above that and say, you know, what, what, what's, how do I frame this question so I can look at a, a myriad of alternatives? Um, one of the other mistakes that folks make is that there's a sort of some descriptive titles here. People tend to be alternative focused in their decision making rather than value focused. Um, and what that means is like, you know, if you're going to buy a car or something, you, you show up at the lot and you start looking at the alternatives, the vehicles that are available to you, and you start looking at the differences between them, horsepower, miles per gallon, what, leathers, whatever, you know, the trim packages, whatever they have, um, rather than being clear about what it is that you're looking for, what's important to you, going in and only, and only starting to look at, that, that'd be the value-focused side of it, and only going in and saying, okay, this is what we're, this is what we're looking for. How do the options compare? Um, even to the point where you're saying, I only want to look at options that meet these criteria. Um, so when it comes to the data, I think the connection there is that, um, I'll give you an example. Actually, the car buying one is, is apropos. We, we were with, <laughs> with all these kids, we got a bunch of teenagers, right? And we were looking at getting another vehicle for the, for the kids primarily to drive. So I'm looking at getting a used vehicle and I'm trying to think, well, what is it that we're looking at? If I open the auto trader app, there's a couple hundred thousand vehicles. Um, so I specify in, hey, it needs to be under 150,000 miles, needs to be $7,000 or less, needs to have, I don't know, four or five criteria. And from that, we ended up with 14 cars that were nearby. And so that was really easy then to start sifting through. Um, and I'm not distracted by all of the other pieces of information about these vehicle. I've been thoughtful and say, for us, it's the kids driving. So it's miles per gallon because we want them to get good places. Um, we might use it in long trips, so we were looking for leather seats for a comfort, and I didn't want it to break. I wanted it to be cheaper, but not start breaking down next month, so some limit on the number of miles. And everything else beyond that was, like, not all that important. Um, so this, I think that the first key to not being overwhelmed with, with, with data in our decision-making and, and the wrong one and, when, and getting too much is being really clear about what's important what's important to us, what are the criteria that we're going to use to make the decision? And those are the only things that I need to go and gather data about, um, right? Or the unknowns that affect that data. You know, I might go do some market research to forecast my revenue, which is going to then impact my profit. And that's what I make based on my decision on or something. Um, so I think one is that clarity is gaining clarity of, of those, um, those value criteria ahead of time. So we're not, we're not you know, people that, market stuff like back to the car buying example like you know the sales guy on the lot's going to want to tell me up and down about these cars i really only care about the information that matters to me helping to, to distinguish between my preferred alternative um i don't really need all the other information i just need my stuff um so i think the biggest key is, is to be clear about our value criteria ahead of time so that we don't get distracted with all of the possible data out there we zero in what's on on what's really important to us and then we get clear about saying hey is the cost of going out and getting that extra data is that worth the additional insight that it might provide and the answer is not always yes 
Um, we tend to sometimes take comfort in saying, oh, I'll just go get more data and more data and more data, even if it is data that informs my value criteria. It might not be worth it in the, in the time or the cost that it takes to get it relative to the benefit that, that the insight, the additional insight that it might provide. So on the flip side of, the, of this question, I want to ask, um, is it, is there value to even having a relatively small amount of data, right? Let's, let's say that you're a, I don't know, a food truck, right? And, and you may have a very limited amount of data, perhaps no more than simply your receipts and your inventory. Um, and, and maybe you have a little bit more, but can good decisions be made on a, on a small amount of data or maybe better, better put, on a, a fairly incomplete data set. Yes, yes, they can. And, and as you kind of alluded to, sometimes that's all you have, yeah. or sometimes that you, that's all that you could reasonably get your hands on or might be affordable to get your hands on, so to speak. Um, and I think this is where coming back to, again, sort of framing up that, that decision, uh, one of the next pieces of that is saying, well, what are the, what are the key unknowns that could really drive my drive my outcome scenarios to be really good or really bad? Like we talked about these Monte Carlo simulations that provide a range of potential outcomes. So what are the factors that really are key to that? So I'll give you an example. Years ago, I used to work uh, for a company that was did a lot of um, home personal care and food products. Um, and so some of those would be manufactured in big warehouses. So we might have a huge product launch. I remember working on a product launch of a, a, a new laundry crystal. So it, it was something, it wasn't, it wasn't sort of the laundry powder, nor was it the liquid. It was these crystal things. They were new. They were looking at launching this. And it required a new manufacturing line. So that huge capital expenditure was in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And as you looked at the overall revenue for the project, like that was impactful. But it actually had a very, because that was very controlled, we knew a lot about it it had a very small range of uncertainty around it. Whereas the range of uncertainty around our market share uh, was much more uncertain. Um, and so for us to go out and get that data was, was even a small bit would be super helpful. Whereas the data on the CapEx side, you know, didn't provide sort of the, the benefit or what, as much benefit. So having a clear idea of what are the key factors that could really swing my outcomes in one direction or the other. Um, again, that's important to know beforehand. And then on, if you have one of those key factors that you have even just a little insight on, you know, a little data can go a long way. I mean, if you know nothing about something happening or not, you essentially have a 50-50 chance. But if you just get a little data that helps you to know, hey, it's more 60-40 than 50-50, the relative value of that uncertainty, you've just shrunk that uncertainty by, you know, 20%. In, right. in so that can be, that relative value of that little piece of information can be super valuable. So um, one of the things I'm sure our listeners are, are concerned about and have asked before is, you know, look, this, this sounds great, but I don't have Tyler's massive education in data analytics I don't even have Blake's sort of back of the envelope iPhone calculator level of data <laughs> analytics. Um, do, do you need to be a statistician or have one on your staff sort of full time in order to use big data? No, no. I mean, yes. 
And this goes back to the question of should every company use it, right? right. Um, if you can pick and deploy the time, there'll be times where you want to invest more heavily in it and times where you invest less heavily. Um, and this goes back a little bit to being able to press the pause button and insert maybe some strategic decisions, right? Um, right. So when the time is right, you might buy into it a little bit more than not. But the basic process of being able to, you know, of recognizing how to plug data in, how it can create value, give you insight in particular about unknowns in, into the future, um, uh, that, that sort of process in principle can always be applied. Um, you know, one of the things that, that, that we teach in our workshops is um, how to use something that we call archetypes, decision archetypes, which is a way to say there's these simple patterns that show up over and over again in decision making um, that hinge on these uncertain uncertainties. Um, and if you can just start to get a read on the ballpark sometimes, all you really need to know to make the decision is which side of the fence you're on. Um, you don't necessarily need to know how far away from the fence you are to an exact T. Right? At times, it's nice you know, to know that exact distance from the fence. But as long as I know which side of the fence I'm sitting on, then I know how to decide and, and how to move forward. Um, and so sometimes, just a, like we were talking, just a little bit of data or a little bit of, of uh, uh, if you're going back to your question was about, hey, do I need all of the analytical chops? No. Um, Having a process that allows you to do a little bit quickly could take it just, you know, got to take a little bit of learning, but it's, it's not overly complex. No. We're talking with Tyler Ludlow of uh, Decision Skills Institute. And um, we're sort of running out of time here, but a couple of questions I want to make sure we get to. Um, <clears throat> one is um, uh, if I'm a small company, I, you know, I have limited resources. What are some tips to maybe, at least amp up my data access or collecting game, right? Are there, are there some easy things maybe a lot of companies could be doing that, that they're not in order just to maybe capture more data they already have or access data maybe they don't know exists that, you know, doesn't completely upend their entire cost structure? That's a good question. Um, I'm going to answer it in a slightly, I hope this doesn't feel too dodgy to the, dodging the question to your listeners. I want to say first, I think the key is to be, um, to be thoughtful about the decisions that you currently make. Um, the bigger ones, the ones that you're already taking some time and thought for. Um, and to take the time to say, what, what bits of data or information, if we knew better, might really impact our ability to make that decision uh, in a more quality manner. Um, so before you start, this goes back to maybe sort of the alternative focus versus value focus bit. Before you start just collecting data because that's the style and the fad, I think having clarity about what data would be most meaningful um, is probably the first thing. Uh, and then you can set some very simple strategies to start with of, of, of being able to, to either collect or get your hands on that, on that specific data at the right time. Um, especially if you're a small business and we think about collecting data off of your own processes, that can be an expensive sort of thing um, to, in, to, to put in a program, a collection program like that, let alone in the moment. Sometimes it takes longer to do a process in a way that it's completely trackable afterwards, right? So those are investments that you're making. You want to make sure you're not doing those just because of fad. Um, and because, hey, I, I know that if we start collecting this data, it will give us insight about this unknown. And that 
can really drive our insight into potential outcomes in the future and, and which way we might go on things going forward. So that would be my sort of, it's a bit dodging the answer, but I would start with the bits of information that would be most useful. Well, I don't think it dodges the answer. I mean, I mean, at, at the end of the day, <clears throat> you know, you, I think kind of restating the answer back to you, I think, I think the answer is, you, you know, you may have to spend some money, make an investment to extract the data that you already have, but it's not, a, it doesn't sound like it's a binary discussion where you either spend no money on it or you spend millions and millions of dollars on it, right? You, you can sort of snipe this and decide what data is the most important and, and you know, it could be, you know, for some companies, you tell me if I'm wrong, some companies, just one data point or one data set makes all the difference. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And, and that's the and, leverage and, part you talked about. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I would say that, uh, you know, maybe building onto this, one of the most common themes that I try to drive home to people when we do teaching and training and workshops and whatnot is that we know more typically than we think we know about how things might be in the future. Um, so often, like whether it's scientists or, or whoever, you know, I start working with someone to help make a decision. It'll be clear that it kind of hinges on this one unknown. I'll start asking about it. And the response is, well, we don't know. It could be anything. Well, that's true. You know, what's the, what would be the height of the next person to walk through the door? Well, it could be anywhere, but you know what? I know it's probably going to be less than seven feet tall and more than four feet tall. And I can probably start going in narrower and narrower down there. And we tend to know more then we allow ourselves in the first pass to think we know about something. And oftentimes just starting to put some reasonable boundaries on things, we realize we can get it into a space where we can then start deriving some insights about what we do rather than just saying, well, it could be anything we don't know until we, you know, bought some market research or, you know, whatever it might be. So a lot of times we've got some of that insight just in our, in our minds because of, in our heads, because of our expertise and our experience. Tyler, we are running out of time, and uh, I, I know I need to let you, you go and, and do your, your many things, but um, I'm, I'm sure there are questions that our, our listeners have out of this discussion where they'd like to maybe ask you and get some expertise on it. Would, would, would you be willing to share your contact information for anybody who wants to ask you a question? Absolutely. If you want to follow up with me directly, um, it's my email is just Tyler, T-Y-L-E-R, at decisionskillsinstitute.com. Well, great. That's going to wrap it up for today's program. I'd like to thank Tyler Ludlow's Decision Skills Institute so much for joining us and sharing his expertise with us. We'll be exploring a new topic each week, so please tune in so that when you're faced with your next decision, you have clear vision when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us so that we can help them. Once again, this is Mike Blake, our sponsors, Bradyware and Company, and this has been the Decision Vision Podcast. 